Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your temporary host for today, Jason Rosenbaum of St. Louis Public Radio and The Beacon. Chris McDaniel is on assignment today. Joining me in studio is... Joe Manis with the St. Louis Public Radio Beacon. And our very special guest for today... Paul Kurtman, state representative. Thank you very much for, for coming here today. As I said before, you are the second Franklin Countyan to join us. The first was Senator Nieves, but you're the first state rep from Franklin County. So we're always trying to break new ground here. And it's an honor. We, we thank you for that. But um, we always ask people to just tell us about their district and what you represent in the state legislature. So that's my first question for you. Sure. I represent District 109, and District 109 kind of encompasses the northeastern quadrant of Franklin County. So I have uh, St. Albans, part of Pacific, Gray Summit, Villa Ridge, Labadee, uh, Union, and Ward 1 in Washington. Ward 1. So Ward 2 people are out of luck for your representation. That Yeah, because they have, they have Representative David Schatz. So, so they're not really that out of luck. Yeah. Yeah, so why don't you tell us a little, tell us and our listeners a bit about yourself. As I've been saying for weeks, there are some who portray you as the Paul Ryan of the Missouri House because of your focus on fiscal issues. I mean, that seems to be your forte. So talk a little bit about yourself and how you got into politics and how you ended sure. up in Jefferson City. Sure. Well, at this point, I still have more professional experience as a United States Marine uh, than I do <laughs> anything else. Um, well, I sw- that could be handy in Jeff City. <laughs> right. It, it abs- Sometimes it does come in handy. Um, but I, I served in the United States Marine Corps in the infantry from 1999 to uh, 2003 on active duty and then in the reserves until 2009. Um, I worked for a little bit as a financial advisor. I had a, uh, I was licensed as a Series 7 General Securities uh, Investment Representative. Um, but then uh, an interesting thing, unfortunate thing happened. A couple of my friends died in the Marine Corps, and I just started becoming more sensitive to things that were going on in government. And so I think that one of my uh, dri- the, one of the drives that I have is a little bit unique, maybe, compared to some of my other colleagues. Um, I started paying attention to things that were going on in government, being a little bit more sensitive, like I just mentioned. And uh, I started to carry a chip on my shoulder for politicians. Um, ironically, now I'm a state representative. But uh, I mean, do you feel I mean, in what way you mentioned mm-hmm. you had a chip on your shoulder about them? Were you? Well, what, what happened when a couple of my friends died is uh, it was right about the time of the 2004 election. And politicians were the, the wars were a hot button issue. And were I, you under, in Iraq I understand at the time? that. No, no, okay. no, no. I was back. I came back home and, okay. uh, and I was in college. But I mean, your friends. Yes, they, it was in Iraq. Okay. And uh, so I'm hearing politicians talk about how they were for or against the war. Of course, John Kerry is famous for it, but it was Republicans too, you know, sure. to, to be fair. Um, but I kind of took that very personal because my buddies didn't have the, the luxury of deciding whether or not they were for or against going on patrol. You know, they, they followed orders. And when I went back and I read the Constitution, things began to make sense. I figured I should read it. I took an oath to it just in order to get in the Marine Corps. And, uh, you know, we take an oath to it in Jefferson City whenever we swear in uh, to our offices. Uh, but then I went back, I read the Declaration of Independence and found out that the whole reason that we have a Constitution and the whole reason we have a Marine Corps or uh, a, a Capitol building in Jefferson City, according to the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, it says that uh, – Governments are instituted to secure our rights. So it's a really simple job description just to help keep people free. Um, But a lot of times I think we see politicians getting elected, and the whole goal that they have is just to climb higher and higher and higher as far as they can. Um, And I think that it's important that people 
uh, get back to the idea of freedom. You know, America has a strong tradition of protecting people's freedom, and sometimes I think it's important for us to reflect on that and kind of stir our minds up a little bit uh, by way of just remembering. Now, before I get into kind of your your rise into politics, I did want to ask, there are some other members of the legislature who are veterans of the Iraq and Afghanistan war. I'm a former uh Reporter in Columbia, I know Stephen Weber very well, who was in the Marine Corps. And we well, were in the same platoon. You were in the same platoon. Just, just for just briefly, we were in the same platoon. So, did you know each other? Were you did you fight together in Iraq, or were no. you just at the, you were at different times, basically R- different times? But we were both in the same reserve unit in uh, St. Louis, mm-hmm. and uh, so I remember him coming back. We were actually in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, when he was talking about how he was going to run for state representative. That, what, so, did that yeah. influence you at all? No. Okay. <laughs> but my question was, there, there there is a group of legislators in Jefferson right. City with military experience. And do so you, is Jason Kander. Jason Kander this as well. The Secretary of State. Do you have a different kind of perspective that you kind of share between you all, regardless of what party you come from, that kind of makes you operate a little bit differently in Jefferson City? Um, probably. I think that just kind of maybe the ethic that the military kind of gives you as far as your thoughtfulness when you approach issues or decision making. I think we probably share that kind of as a, as a smaller culture or community. Um, I still think that our political philosophies can vary uh, to a large degree. You know, we, we have different things that motivate us and drive us, and we're there for maybe different reasons also. But I think that there, we do have that common bond. For example, me and uh, uh, Stephen Weber, you know, um, we get along great. We talk to each other about the issues. We agree on a, on a number of things. But when it comes to uh, issues along the left or right paradigm, at that point, we'll begin to sure. separate a little bit. So let's kind of talk about your entry into Missouri politics, because I really do feel it's one of the neater stories, because you kind of gained a little bit of Internet fame, I guess, in 2009 or 2010 during a town hall meeting that was hosted by Senator McCaskill. This is a blast from the past. Yeah, this is we – th- is, is this the big town hall that she did in Jefferson County? This was the one in uh, Forest Park, I think at the college. Oh, yeah. yes, I was there. And okay, I was there both of them. Somebody filmed a very passionate speech that you made kind of um, talking about the federal health care law, and it kind of went viral. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about that and kind of how that – propelled you into the political consciousness. Sure. I what, what I did was I got up to the, the microphone, and my remarks were geared towards the fact that trying to draw some commonality between myself and the senator that we now, both— Now, had the law been passed yet? Not yet. Yeah, I didn't think so. I thought this was right before the law was mm-hmm. passed. Go ahead. And so I was trying to draw some commonality between myself and the senator that we both took a note to the Constitution. You know, my role was in the Marine Corps. Your role is in the United States Senate. Um, but I firmly believe, and, and I know that the Supreme Court might rule otherwise, but, you know— I. I believe that the Supreme Court might be wrong from time to time, too. <laughs> I believe I believe that it, it, it's unconstitutional for the government to coerce people into a commercial transaction or to participate in the economy. Um, so I, I brought that up and I said, you know, we, let, we need to stick with the Constitution. And, and I would rather you have an apology to offer for, you know, wanting to push this through um, on the people of Missouri rather than just provide an explanation mm-hmm. for why she was voting the way she voted. Uh, but that video went viral, and I did I did a couple interviews on Fox and Friends that week, and um, just kind of get the message out a little bit more. You know, I was thinking this was, this will just be a, a one week issue. You know, I'm just the flavor of the week as far as the internet's concerned. And <laughs> oh, but you were that was not the, to be the case because you entered a race against uh, Democrat Michael Frame of Jefferson County in right. 2010. What prompted you to do that? 
frame was an incumbent. And I would say he Go was ahead. a pretty strong candidate in many respects because he'd yes. run before. He had won a special election by a lot. And, you know, as we'll get to in a second, he, he won this past year. So it was not a pushover opponent. But what kind of prompted you into that race? Well, the, the party came to me, actually, and said, hey, we're looking for some candidates to run in some different races. Have you ever thought about running for state representative? And it's something that I had thought about a long time ago. I think just kind of like when you're in the Marine Corps, or you're in high school or college, things that you might like to consider. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, so I put some prayer into it. I don't want to make rash decisions. Um, and I just felt like I had peace about doing it. And uh, so I, I pulled the trigger on that race. And, and Mike, Michael Frame is a, a, a formidable opponent because he had he'd won school board elections. He was very well known in the area. Every time I knocked on a door, somebody would ask, who are you running against? I say Michael Frame, and then it was immediately, oh, well, good luck. <laughs> so it, it was it it took a a, a lot of uh, effort and a lot of walking. But Do you think it helped the fact that the uh, 2010 ended up being a pretty strong, very strong Republican year, in part because of the blowback mm-hmm. over the uh, health care vote? Do you think that played a role in your um, victory? I think it did play a role. Um, I don't I don't believe it was the only factor. I don't think I just rode in easily on coattails. Okay. Um, we had knocked on 30,000 doors. I put my cell phone number on all the mailers and all the flyers that I uh, sent out. I was just trying to be as available and as accessible as possible and show people that I was a candidate that wasn't afraid to um, get a phone call from them or a text message. And, and in kind of a quirky situation, um, because of redistricting, you were put, I guess, in Tim Jones's district, if I'm not mistaken. You decided to run in a Franklin County district, and Michael Frame ran in a Jeffco-based district. You both won. You both served together. And I've talked with both of you about this. Seems like there really wasn't a whole lot of animosity. I don't know if you're best friends or anything, but it seems <laughs> like you're in a more civil situation than, say, Jeff Rorda and Paul Weiland are, who are about to tear each other apart in that Jeff collection. Is that a fair assessment in many respects? Yeah, I, I think so. Me and Mike, we get along really well. Um, we, we talk about issues. We talk about different things going on. We're, we're sure not you know, best friends by sure. any means, but I think that you know, it's kind of like little kids, they get into a fight, and then they develop this respect and this friendship. You know, I think that's kind of how it was with me and Mike. And But even during our campaign, it was a very clean, honest, uh, respectful campaign. Yeah, which is refreshing because Missouri politics can get kind of bloody and damaging at times. Now, how much was your district changed between 2010 and 2012? It changed significantly. Um, it, it, the way the districts were redrawn, it kind of worked out well for me because it put the majority of the district back totally in Franklin County, which is exactly where I'm from. So now I had a lot of people who supported me in the first election that could now actually support me and vote for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it went from probably being about a uh, 55 or 56 percent Democrat district to probably about a 55 or 56 percent yeah. Republican district. Now, are you in frame even in the same district now? No. No. I, I didn't think so. Yeah. So I think that's probably another reason there's really no reason to fight anymore because their political swords are probably not going to clash ever again because you're in different counties and different districts. But you never know. This is a weird (laughs) state. But let's kind of get into the issues. As Joe kind of mentioned or alluded to, you're the chairman of the Downsizing Government Committee, and you actually held hearings, I believe, all over the state. First, I want you to kind of explain what this committee's purpose is and kind of what you found going across the state um, for this committee. Sure. Uh, the committee was actually originally formed by uh, Steve Tilley when he was Speaker of the House just a few years ago. Um, Cole McNary was the first chairman. I was the vice chair. Um, I think when uh, Representative McNary had the chairmanship, he was focusing on just trying to eliminate some redundant statutes and cleaning up the current legislation. Uh, n- myself being the chairman, I'm trying to take it in a different direction. What I want to do is I want to be 
Uh, I'm, I'm big, and you heard me say it a second ago, talking about my campaign. I want to be available and accessible to people. And I think that the people who have the most to offer about what government can do to cooperate with the people, um, the people that are probably closest to seeing a lot of fraud, waste, or abuse, are probably just you know the the citizens of Missouri, you know, from east to west, north to south. And so we took our uh, committee on a three-day tour. We we it, it was a blast of a tour. Three cities um, per day for three days. Uh, it, it is downsizing state government, so we sure don't want to extend. You, you it don't want to have you don't want to have thirty <laughs> hearings in every county because right. that's going to be kind of expensive. I would that imagine. would defeat the purpose of the committee. <laughs> Um, but we, we went across the state and we just took information, took thoughts, comments, um, uh, ideas from people. Normally when people participate with the committee process, it's because they have to go to Jefferson City because a bill's already been filed. We wanted to go to the people and get ideas for legislation that they thought was important. So what, what, I know that you came up with a report recently. Um, what, was, what were some of the things that you Correct. found from that? Well, we, we had a report that we um, had released after the committee. It had all of our testimony in it, as well as articles that were written about the committee from across the state. And the people can actually see a copy of that. We have a website that I put up called downsizingmogov.com. Write um, that down, boys and girls. <laughs> and so people can go there. And there's, there's even a form there where people can actually continue to give us their ideas. And that report's on there. But um, after the committee and after the report, we kind of got this idea from the people that they believe that the state's just wasting their money. Um, I was able to dig up some uh, polling numbers that were conducted this year from a poll that was conducted this year, and the consensus was across the state, Republicans and Democrats, from a sample of 800 people in Missouri, they believe that the state is wasting about 33 cents on every dollar. And I think that's pretty significant for um, a sampling of 800 people to come, you know, generally to that mean, to that uh, agreement. What, what were the, the – just to, without belaboring the point – can you tick through like the top three or four just uh, key things that your committee is recommending? Yes, we have. Uh, we we sent a, a memo to the speaker's office. There's a few things that we're re- recommending. One, but we think that we need to start focusing a little bit on our IT in the state. Um, we need to find uh, better ways to cooperate with. Uh, the software manufacturers and producers, rather than kind of taking the Band-Aid approach, you know, every time there's something that needs to be upgraded, then we'll reach out and do it from somebody else. And before the whole thing's said and done, we have multiple licenses, and it's just really redundant when so the whole state So you're shares. talking about state government having right. different – so what you're talking about is having some sort of common – IT. We want to consolidate a lot Correct. of our information technology for the sake of efficiency um, and cost effectiveness. And if I'm not mistaken, one of the other things had to do with car leases, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Right. We have uh, right now the Office of Administration. Uh, they're, they're working with us on this issue, but our state manages its own fleet, you know, the, the government vehicles, the state vehicles that some people might see out on the road. A couple of years ago, they went ahead and thought that they could eliminate 500 vehicles out of the, out of the fleet and save some money. And they did that. Uh, I, but they didn't really feel much of an impact, which leads us to believe that we can probably save a lot more money if we try. Uh, we have uh, a lot of vehicles that are sitting on lots that aren't being used. Um, we're not exactly sure. Well, we do know the policy that they use uh, to keep checks and balances over how mm-hmm. the vehicles are being used. Uh, but what we want to do is we want to have a hearing in uh, in January get some information from the Office of Administration. But we also want to bring in the private sector. You know, we have companies like Hertz and Enterprise and they do this for a living, you know, and their goal is to be profitable. So we want to get some ideas from them also about maybe things that our state can implement. And, and any other key one or two? Yes, uh, comparative audits. That probably won't be an issue that we 
uh, pursue this next January just because we have our plate kind of full. Mm-hmm. Um, but the state of Washington allowed their auditor con- to conduct comparative audits. And a comparative audit allows the auditor to look at different state bureaucracies and kind of scrub, scrub them against each other to see who's doing what right. Uh, and they were able to find about $5 billion worth of savings over the course of just a few years. And I think that it would, might be a good investment for our state to make that same uh, approach. What I was going to ask was, um, these seem like manageable changes that could probably be implemented. Is there any kind of trepidation or reluctance to do huge wholesale changes, like getting rid of whole departments or you know, getting rid of like the attorney general or something like that, you know, just <laughs> really major changes to government because they might be more controversial than, than stuff like this. Right. I think I think if we were just going to immediately jump in and try to eliminate a whole bureaucracy or a whole department or agency, that that would be a very uh, – uh, that would be a mountainous task to, to try to accomplish. Um, and at that point, there might be some special interests that get involved. Um, I kind of like to take the approach of we could do that. We could take one axe and swing, just lob off a fourth of the government. Or what we could do is just make, you know, a thousand small cuts someplace. And that way it wouldn't put too much people um, – it wouldn't wouldn't concern too much people thinking that all their uh, benefits or all their – everything they depend on the state is going to go away now. But if we can make a bunch of small cuts somehow, uh, then the state can absorb that a lot easier. So in other words, trying to be more pragmatic. Right. Right. And that was no disrespect to Attorney General Coster. We we love you here on the Politically Speaking podcast. Any any other hearings? I don't hearing, know about that. I don't know if we really love him, <laughs> but I think it was just a term of endearment. Any other hearings coming up in uh, before the session starts? Not before the session starts, but right at the very beginning of the session, we're going to be taking some inform, uh, some hearings for information purposes only. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily talking about legislation, but a lot of these different bureaucracies and agencies and the, the things that the state is currently doing we're going to be having informational hearings on those. Now, I want to shift gears to the past a little bit. I guess the recent past. I guess special session was, what, yes. two or three weeks ago? And it just seems like. <laughs> it seems like 10 years ago at this point. But uh, there was a special session called around Thanksgiving to give incentives to Boeing to build the 777X here a, in Missouri. Yeah, a, a, a commercial airliner that right had been planned to be built in Washington State, but there was a union fight between Boeing and the union, and so they've been looking elsewhere, and there's close to two dozen states vying for the business. So the competition is hot, so to speak. Now, before we get into this topic, I just want to point this out right here. You were opposed to this, but due to kind of a technical situation, you ended up voting yes because you thought this was the resolution to fix another problem or whatnot. I don't really want to delve too deep into that because it's it didn't really make a difference in the count. It right. passed overwhelmingly. I don't think anyone is questioning your, your bona fides on that issue. But I just wanted to get that out there in case anybody was looking at the legislative record and was confused here. But getting that out of the way, what were kind of your trepidations or misgivings about this proposal or just the idea of giving this incentive package to Boeing? Well, there's a couple things that um, caused me great concern. First of all, when we're talking about a $1.7 billion package to be passed in such a short amount of time, um, I believe that when the government rushes to do stuff, it'll make mistakes. And sometimes those mistakes can become exponential, which, you know, the case that you just mentioned, I think, was just one illustration of that. Um, But we're talking about a lot of tax incentives. Now, according to the way the bill worked, um, $1.7 billion, but in the bill, the governor in the Department of Economic Development would have also had authority to extend uh, the build incentive, one of the incentives in the program, uh, by another half percent. Um, 
that would have extended it from a $1.7 billion project to a $2.4 billion project uh, pretty much. Mm -hmm. And so I think in order for the state to come back and receive the actual economic benefit of a $1.7 billion program is one thing. But then if you extend that to $2.4 billion, we got a lot further to go. And so I was a little concerned about that. But also when you crunch the numbers that the governor gave us in his own handout, according to that, um, running running the numbers through uh, the incentives and how many jobs it would create, in order to cover the, the $1.7 billion tax gap that would effect- effectively have been created um, between 2018 and 2022, we would have had to have over 40,000 non-Boeing manufacturing jobs come into our state. And I don't know where we're going to get those other 40,000 jobs to help cover this. And then by 2032, that number would drop down to 6,000. But the governor's numbers, using his numbers, I couldn't find anything past 2032. I couldn't find any numbers to indicate that we would begin to um, bring the state back. Now, our guest last week, Michael Butler, uh, he said he was going in there and voting no because he did not like the fact that this was an example in his view of corporate welfare. But he voted for it anyways because the job possibilities was mm-hmm. was enticing. I guess a two-part question as kind of coming from the other side of the fence or politically, do you think this was an example of, of corporate welfare? And two, going to his point, was this such a big opportunity that it was willing to put those types of concerns aside uh, for, for, for the possibility of jobs. I absolutely do believe this was uh, a, an example of corporate welfare. And I think that the fact that our state has to come together to, cr- to create a special economic environment just for one industry is indicative that we don't have a good economic environment for all industries, which means that we're chasing jobs away by not having a good economic environment. So I, I would say that it is corporate welfare when we, when we tell one company that we're going to do really well, we're going to put together a really good package just for you, uh, meanwhile, the businesses back in my district, um, uh, they're going to – the tax burden that's is going to ultimately be transferred and levied onto other people to make up for the taxes that Boeing's not paying. And I understand that you know we don't have another aircraft manufacturing company in Missouri that would be competing against Boeing. You know, so it's not necessarily picking winners and losers as far as one you know businesses within one industry right. goes. But I think that it's. Uh, it's important that we make sure that we stick to sound financial and economic principles. And one of the fundamental uh, underlying tenets of economic freedom, for example, is making sure that you instill um, equality under the law, which means the same type of uniformity that that you have in the tax code is important to apply from one to another business. Well, so what's your thought about um, state tax credits in general? I mean, because this was putting together a tax credit package. And Mm -hmm. of course, there's some people in the legislature who want to get rid of all tax credits for that for the reason that you talked about. Others um, have a different view. Uh, you want to talk about your thoughts about that really quick? Sure. I I think that um, the tax credits that we have in Missouri, um, I think that we need to prioritize them and look for the ones that actually haven't yielded the type of return that we thought they were going to. Um, I don't think that it's a good policy to pull in 163 re- people from across the state uh, to start essentially what amounts to putting together a business plan based on the mm-hmm. The, the taxpayer dollars. I think that that's kind of risky, and I don't think it's a good idea for the government to uh, enter into uh, corporate venturism or risk with taxpayer dollars when at the same time we have to fund education. Constitutionally speaking, we have to fund education. So I think that tax credits also creates a gap um, uh, that would ultimately um, hinder our ability to fund education to the degree that we'd like to. I think we need to make sure that we stick to the core functions of state government. And as these tax credits come up, we just need to be very careful about how we go about it and make sure that um, we have a good, you know, the risk does not uh, uh, levy 
against us, you know, that, right. that things are in our favor already. Now, I don't want you to speak for other people because you weren't in the legislature in 2008, but this situation brings to mind for me Bombardier in 2008. And that was a as I said last week and several other times, that was an instance where the state legislature was trying to incentivize Bombardier to come to Kansas City. There's a $240 million package that was thrown around, and it passed with overwhelming margins, similar to this, but it didn't end up being successful. Now, last week when Michael Butler was on, I mentioned for a fact that some Democrats called that corporate welfare ran ads against Republicans whatnot. I kind of want to turn it around a little on its head. Because a lot of people in the Senate, and you're not in the Senate, you're in the House, and you weren't there, so this this doesn't mean that you had a position on that. But like people like Senators Lager, uh, Kral, Lemke, Nieves, they all voted for that, and then they've been the p- biggest critics of something like this and the biggest critics of tax credits. So I guess more philosophically, um, in your time in the legislature, has there been kind of a shift in the way some of the most conservative members look at some of these deals? and in tax credits in general, just say from the time you entered the legislature up until now? I think so. I think our legislature is continually becoming more thoughtful. It might not always seem like that, depending on what bills that are being put up. Um, But from my first year in the legislature, uh, my first session at least, um, when I compare this last session to my first session, um, I see a lot more discussion going on in the offices and in the hallways about some of these bills, which, which to me, that's a good sign. It's not where I would like it to be. Uh, by any means, but it's a step in the right direction. I think that it's now I think people are starting to actually deliberate some of the issues um, to the degree that most of the people expect out of us. Well, I guess that would be a a net positive, even if you didn't agree with the example there. Um, Let's kind of turn a little bit to tax policy, because we know our listeners love numbers and tax policy. (laughs) Um, We've talked kind of ad nauseum on the show about the tax cut bill, which didn't end up getting overridden, which will probably come back in some form next year. And before we kind of touch on that, I know that you actually have kind of a different tax proposal that I thought it'd be worth you sharing and and us discussing. So what is it, basically? Sure. Well, there's kind of two issues. The first one is uh, right now our tax brackets in Missouri range from $1,000 to $9,000. Now, those tax brackets were instituted in 1931. Correct. So if you're making $9,000 in Missouri, you're getting charged 6% of your of taxes, uh, 6% of that has to go to the, to the state government. Well, in 1931, if you were making $9,000, you were living pretty well. So it might have made sense for you to be in the highest tax bracket. But in 2013, you're $2,400 below the poverty line, and you're still in the highest tax bracket. So our uh, our tax brackets have never adjusted for inflation. And had they been adjusting for inflation since 1931, they would have been more appropriately suited to 2013. So I have a bill that would begin to adjust them for uh, inflation from this point forward. And I'm working on another bill that would take our tax brackets and basically pick them up and move them above the poverty line. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that can you give is, an example so, so people sure. can? Sure. Okay. Uh, a, single, a single person, uh, for a single person uh, collecting any kind of income, they would be below the poverty line, I think, if they were making right about uh, $11,400. Um, well, I, the way I see it is if you're below the poverty line, the state shouldn't be charging you any taxes. But then it, if you're making $1,000 above the poverty line, or, or for example, right now, you would be in the $1,000 tax bracket if you're making $1,000. Well, at that point, then you would pay 1% uh, income tax. So in other words, under your proposal, if you were making $12,000 a year, you'd pay 1%. Right. Okay. Okay. As opposed to now, they're they're paying 
Um, six percent. Six percent. Now, exactly. if I'm not mistaken, and I could be wrong on this, and you probably were coming from a different philosophical bent, but didn't Jeanette Mott Oxford propose something relatively similar? Maybe she wanted to raise. And the she's taxes. a Democrat. By she's the way. a mm-hmm. Democrat, a very progressive liberal Democrat, and she might have wanted to raise like the brackets, you know, the, for the higher income to pay more. And maybe you have a different opinion, but it seems pretty similar to that mentality. Even if in practice it might be different, is that? I'm not sure what her bill did. In fact, this is the first I've I've yeah. heard of it. Yeah. Um, but I think that this bill kind of does two things. Uh, first of all, it, it makes an, it's an appropriate reform that's not necessarily geared towards tax cuts. It just brings our tax policy up to date. Um, and I'm still looking into this. It's, it's possible I might see some things that I don't like and decide to scrap the whole thing. But right now, I think it's I'm I'm taking a, a trying to take a thoughtful approach to it. Yeah. Um, but I think it will do two things. First of all, I think that I can meet the left on this by saying this is going to help out a lot of people who um, are, are, are not as well off as others. Um, but at the same time, I think that it's possible that we're also going to see a lot of money kept in the local economies rather than sent to the government simply because we're moving the tax brackets up. It's possible. I guess it just depends on how you rearrange those brackets, right. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. What sort of reaction have you been getting from the House leadership? Um None right now, just because I, I'm still in the process of working on a good draft. I've gone through four different drafts of this bill, trying to find something uh, that's appropriate and that will work. I want something that will work that people can get on board with that uh, um, we all feel like we can take home to our districts. Now, what do you think uh, the the general tax cut environment is going to be post HB 253? You voted to override that. I guess you right. voted for the initial bill. Um, what do you think? What do you see coming out from that? perspective of tax policy next session. Uh, Representative T.J. Berry uh, from the western side of the state was the one that kind of spearheaded the whole issue last year. It was his bill. I talked to him a little bit this year, and I'm not sure exactly what his new bill all entails. I'm not so sure he's going to focus as much on the income tax cuts, uh, but I am for income tax cuts. I think that House Bill 253 was a good bill. It wasn't radical by any stretch of the imagination. It was half a percent reduction over the course of 10 years. Um, in increments of one twentieth of a percent um, with with certain safety nets, um, but obviously that uh, didn't fare too well with our governor, and we weren't able to override his veto. So we obviously have to take another approach. So I am looking forward to see what Representative Barry brings back to is, session. Is it going to be slightly harder though? I, I I'm sure you heard the news last week that one of your colleagues was tapped for the board of probation and parole. I'm sure that made Tim Jones just super happy that you're now below one oh eight because Jason Smith's seat is still vacant. This other seat may not be filled for and a while. And just so our listeners know, it's 109 is needed to override anything. Right. Is that going to make it a little bit more difficult to maybe pass something if this is controversial, especially the tax cut? Or do you think that those might be filled by the time you really get down to brass tacks? They might be filled. Now, I'm not sure uh, the representative that was uh, tapped by the governor to fill that uh, position, I'm not sure how he voted on the override. He voted no. So he was a no on oh, that. Oh, he was a no on, sure. on the override? Dennis okay. Fowler was one of the intransigent 15 or fearless yeah. 15 <laughs> fearless or whatever you want to call it. But yes, continue. So so obviously on a bill like this, um, it wouldn't make a difference. The, right now, the, the I guess the hope is that we could fill somebody that would actually vote yes. Um, but I think that as far as when, when it comes to uh, putting up bills that we think we might have to override the governor's veto on, I think that area, I think... Is I think is a pretty safe Republican district, so I think I that, would say so. I think that uh, the speaker is probably pretty confident that we'll we'll be fine there. Well, will there be more strains with the school districts? I mean, because the school districts had a key role in uh, influencing these Republicans and others 
to not vote for the override because they were contending what it would do to their budgets. Uh, is this going to affect the either the crafting of the new bill or the relationship between um, uh, tax cut advocates, advocates such, as, such as people. yourself and school districts? Um, I think that that's something that each representative would have to speak to as far as the relationship that they have with their school superintendents and school boards. Um, last week I met with the superintendents uh, from the districts in my county, and we have a good relationship even though I was for the tax cut and they weren't. And, you know, we discussed that uh, to a great degree. Really? Yeah. And so – but what, what we had we have a good meeting. We usually meet in uh, – um, we keep in communication about several issues, but I guess that uh, your question about whether or not it's going to um, interfere with the relationships all comes down to how the representatives and the superintendents, you know, the approach that they take to communicate. How do you kind of see yourself in the Republican caucus? I, I do kind of see that you have different philosophical bad. A bit more libertarian, potentially? Maybe a bit more libertarian. Does, does that make you more popular among your caucus or sometimes people uh... – you know, question a lot of your. I things. think what it does, and and he, you know, I do have a libertarian streak in me on on a few issues. There's some issues I just don't think the government should be involved in at all. Example. Um, for example, uh, I don't think that the government uh, should be involved. Second, we can talk about Second Amendment issues, okay. for example. Okay. I think that the, the Second Amendment is pretty clear; it removes the jurisdiction of firearms regulation from the federal government. Okay. Um, so, in in that particular area, I think that when the government tries to uh, legislate. Uh, personal habits. I think that the role of government, according to the Declaration, is to protect our rights, which means that the government only has jurisdiction over people if people are injurious to other people's rights. And so that's I, I take that uh, principle and apply it to the issues. And so um, uh, that brings me to say that on some issues, I'm just going to say the government has no jurisdiction to get involved. But I think that the Republican Party, uh, I, I get along great with the leadership. I uh, get along great with all my colleagues. Um, I haven't been involved in any kind of inter-party spats or disputes. We have a pretty good relationship. Um, but I bring a lot of value to the party because Ron Paul has a lot of young supporters, and I've immediately been able to kind of tap into that crowd and that demographic. There and- were thousands of people in St. Charles. And I, I kind of predict if Rand Paul does run for president, it it's going to be – not to say that Ron Paul's campaigns were not serious because they were. They attracted a pretty wide following – but I think he's going to be a pretty strong contender for that race, especially in divided field. And someone like you who, you know, holds some views similarly to them, you know, could get a lot of notice in the next few years. Is that kind of what you're hearing? Um, maybe. It'd be, it'd be good for me. You know, I've got a message that I want to get out to people. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, I supported uh, Ron, Ronald Reagan said that libertarianism is the heart of conservatism, you know, drawing attention to the idea that the whole point of being a Republican or conservative is just to help keep people free, like I've said. And he also said that if you find a candidate that you agree 80 percent with, and that's your candidate. Uh, and, and Ron Paul, the 80 percent that I agreed with him on was economic policy um, and fiscal issues. And most people I talk to say that they can't argue with him on a lot of those issues. He was kind of the – he made himself the authority on monetary policy and economic policy. Well, we'll see what happens in 2016. As I kind of alluded to earlier, maybe you'll be Rand Paul's running mate in 2016. <laughs> that would probably be a dream of yours. So to close it out, you can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me at Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And you can follow the representative at... Paul Kurtman. He has a very devoted following on social media. So I'm hoping you post this on and we get thousands of hits. Absolutely. We will see. 
Anyways, uh, thank you for joining us. And until next week, so long.